Welcome to another episode of the Gay Barcive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is entertainer, raconteur, and theatrical historian, Richard Skipper. So welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, finally. You're quite welcome. I know this is kind of turning the tables on you a little bit. I think in your career, you've done probably close to a thousand interviews. Well uh, past that. How are you? <laughs> uh, well, because of COVID, uh, I've been doing them virtually, but I've done many on stage long before that. Excellent. So now we get to put you under the spotlight. And well, I, like um, I know we're going to talk about some of your favorite memories of gay bars from Manhattan. Um, most all of them kind of in the in the uh, Greenwich Village area, right? That's right. That's right. So let's start off with the one that surprised me the most because I never really thought of it as being kind of a, a piano bar, entertainment kind of bar. And it's still open. Uh, it's called The Monster. So tell me about The Monster. Well, The Monster was one of the first real uh, uh, piano bar, gay bars that I discovered in the village. The upstairs uh, was a piano bar. Downstairs was a disco, a dance club. And uh, I used to go every Friday, Saturday night, and sometimes Sunday afternoons. My weekends were spent there. Uh, The piano players that I remember there, first of all, Stanley Keeler. Stanley Keeler had the most outrageous drag that you could possibly ever imagine. Uh, His drag was not to be in the vein of, let's say, a RuPaul or a female impersonator. It was really outrageous, over the top, as crazy as it could possibly get. For example, he could have a a wig on his head that was three feet high with a birdcage in the middle of it. I mean, there were all kinds, whoever did his makeup, or the wigs was just amazing at what they did. But it was almost like going to a party. Uh, when you went in on a Friday night, the place was festooned with balloons everywhere. Uh, and on the piano itself uh, were just like these buffets of fruit. Uh, and then uh, they would bring desserts in later as the evening went on. They were constantly replenishing it. Uh, And for the moment that you walked in, it was almost as if you were in this party atmosphere. And that's what I loved most about the monster. And for a young 20-year-old, slightly older, uh, that was just starting to get my footing in the gay community, it was a very welcoming, comfortable place to be. Now, what kind of a clientele did the monster draw at that time? A little bit of everything. Uh, You named it, it was there. Uh, As I said, it was very welcoming. So a lot of uh, older people were there. Uh, Again, as I was a late bloomer. So I was probably around 22 when I first discovered it. And uh, it was just a mix of everything. And the bar is still there, as I understand. Yes. It's still there and operating. Do they still have the piano room upstairs? I have to be honest with you. It has been so long since I've been there. Uh, but I think that the piano bar is still very much a very a, an active part of it. Yeah. And my understanding, too, is I know at one time they had a, a monster in Key West. They opened up a location in Key West, Florida. And... Did I hear something about recently them opening a location in P-Town? I don't know. I was in P-Town this summer and there wasn't a monster there. But I will also add that there used to be a monster also on Fire Island. So oh, maybe that's where it was. there was one other monster as well. Very cool. And that's located in, in Greenwich Village. Do you remember where? Uh, right off of Sheridan Square. Okay. So the rest of the bar, you said upstairs was kind of um, piano bar. What, and downstairs was more of a dance bar, disco. I guess they, I get the impression from some of the images I've seen that they do the whole kind of typical gay bar 
go-go boy thing and all that? Uh, uh, everything. Uh, everything from go-go boys to drag queens and everything in between. So is it a little bit more um, relaxed and and vibrant downstairs the way the crowd is as opposed to upstairs? Is there a little bit more of a conservative crowd upstairs or is it pretty much the same people that just go up and down? Well, I don't know if conservative is the right word to use. <laughs> well, um, uh, for me, uh, being uh, as someone who was a singer uh, in New York, it was just the perfect place to be. Everyone stood around the piano singing uh, and it never felt competitive. Everybody joined in together. Um, and once in a blue moon, you know, I really wasn't a, a dancing queen, so to speak. Uh, so I very rarely would go downstairs. Um once in a while, I'd meet somebody, you know, and they would say, let's go dancing. And that would always entice me to go downstairs. Uh, but for the most part, uh, my time was always spent upstairs. Well, they must be doing something right to be there after all these years. I mean, they've been in there in the village for, what, 40 years, something like that? I Absolutely. It's been uh, it, when you say 40 years, all of a sudden I'm beginning to feel old. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, but absolutely. There was a guy at the door. Bella uh, was the doorman. And he was this big, burly uh, guy. Uh, he was always welcoming to me because I'd sang there. Uh, there was a line outside the door, uh, normally to get in on Friday or Saturday night. But uh, if Bella saw me, he would pull me out of line and he would get me inside. I see. So you had special VIP privileges there too. Well, I, I well, I'm a very you already know this about me, but to reiterate, I'm a very welcoming, open person and so standing around the piano singing, I would encourage everyone to join in and it was just almost like my little platform on a Friday or a Saturday night. And uh like I said, it was just very much a party atmosphere. Now, it surprised me to learn you know, looking at the list of bars that we're going to talk about today, that there were so many uh, gay bars that had a piano aspect to them in the village around the same time. I mean, it's almost like a mini Broadway. It's like they put all these, you know, attracted all these people from Broadway shows to kind of pop into the village and hang out at piano bars. Is that the way it was or? You know, it's very interesting uh, that you bring that up because that's very much what the feel was. Uh, and uh, Grove Street, where the other bars that we're going to talk about in a moment, they were all in the same vicinity. So it almost felt like uh, a street fair was going on, no matter what time of year it was. Uh, there's no way that you would be in that area that you would not run into people that you knew. Uh, and uh, so it was this feeling of uh, community. I guess is the best way to describe it. And as a result of that, uh, it, the interesting thing is there's a whole group of us who are now in our early 60s, those of us who I will say have been lucky enough to still be around uh, because there was a lot going on, as you know, at that time. Uh, but the fact that so many of us were hitting New York at the same time and again, I never felt this sense of being competitive with other people. It was just this welcoming, open atmosphere of let's get together and have a good time. How how big was the monster? Do you have any idea? Well, when you first walked in the door, there was a huge bar uh, that went almost the length of, I mean, there's a huge window at the entrance of the monster. That bar seemed to go the entire length of that window. It was a huge bar. And then to your right, when you walked in, if you walked past the bar uh, and you uh, went right and then left, that's where the piano was situated. And that whole area was very spacious. Um, on the other side of the piano, uh, I can't believe that I'm remembering the details of this so vividly right now. But on the other side of the piano uh, were a couple of banquettes. And, uh, you know, guys would hang out in that area. Uh, but it wasn't just guys. It was st uh, straight couples would come in. Uh, I remember seeing a lot of straight couples there. 
uh, you know, gay guys, obviously. And, uh, and it also, I don't feel that I saw as many lesbians there as you probably would probably find there now. But then again, it's been years since I've been there. So one last question about the monster. Who was the most famous person you ever saw at the monster? The most famous person that I ever saw. I don't recall that I ever saw a famous person at the monster. Uh, I think of Stanley Keeler, who was the piano player there. And he was a celebrity to begin with in his own right. Uh, I remember... One time, and again, this is early, early on in my, if you can call it that, coming out stage. I was in the monster one night singing my head off. And all of a sudden I hear, Ricky Skipper, is that you? <laughs> and I turned around and it was a guy that I went to high school with. Uh, and my first thought was, oh my God, he's seeing me in a gay bar because I wasn't out in my hometown. Or at least I didn't think I was. Um, and then it dawned on me, well, he's here too. So it was, <laughs> you know, so that went away very fast. So another bar that we're going to talk about today is one that I've heard things about from lots of people. Uh, everybody that, that knows about it seems to love it and have great things to say about it. It has a very unusual name and obviously is also located uh, in the village. It was called Marie's Crisis. That's right. So how did Marie's Crisis compare to Monster? Well, the Monster was, I would call the Monster uh, a, a Mercedes Benz. And Marie's Crisis would be a rickety pickup truck. <laughs> uh, it was grungy. It was, uh, when you walked in, you walked downstairs uh, it was almost like you were going into a dark basement type of area. Uh, when you wa first walked in, the piano, which is still in the same spot, uh, was in the very center of the room against the wall. Um, and then the bar was uh, all the way across from when you first walked in the bar. Did they draw a different type of clientele? Did you find a different age group or demographic at Marie's crisis than you would at say monster? I feel that it was an older crowd that was looking. I mean, it was the real traditional at that time, uh, uh, American songbook standards, uh, Broadway uh, songs. Uh, but I think it was an older crowd that, you know, you saw there. Now I'll be putting up some pictures. Um, that I've dug up on the web and through various sources of Marie's crisis, as well as all the other bars we're talking about. And I get exactly what you're saying about that kind of rickety pickup truck concept. I mean, every picture I've seen of it, it looks like it could use a paint job, a fresh sign, you know, a little bit of housekeeping inside, maybe some new fabric on the furniture. It, it kind of looks like, you know, maybe grandma decorated it in the forties and it just stayed that way. That's right. That That's a perfect analogy of it. But Marie's Crisis has a very special place for me because I ended up in 1989 becoming a singing waiter at Marie's Crisis, which was a lot of fun. And I also, in uh, 19, uh, in Memorial Day of 1990, met my husband. And we've been together ever since. All right, then. Yeah, so well, congratulations. It's a very special place for me. <laughs> and now Marie's Crisis is still open too, right? Oh yeah. And it's going it's going gangbusters. It's been uh depicted in several movies, uh sev several TV series. Uh the clientele uh is pretty much what there's a there's an expression in New York. I don't know if you've ever heard of this expression before called bridge and tunnel crowd. Oh, yeah. Yes. And that's the clientele that they pretty much uh, pull in right now. Uh, it's still a gay uh, vibe to it, but I think that it's more gentrified than it was at the time that I was working there. Well, that seems to be the case with a lot of um, a lot of things that the 
excuse me, the gays get their hands on. That's um, right. You take a rundown neighborhood, you fix it up a little bit, it gentrifies, and all of a sudden the suburbanites want to come and hang out there and eat at the restaurant that they wouldn't have, you know, even thought twice about going to five or ten years earlier. And um so it's not surprising to me. I think in general, probably the whole Greenwich Village area has gentrified quite a bit and it's not oh my God. nearly it's not as gay as it was. It's not even recognizable. Well, you know, it's very interesting in the trajectory of New York gay life. What was once, everything was, uh, first of all, in Greenwich Village. And then everything seemed to move uptown to Chelsea. And that, I mean, going uh, through Chelsea uh, is like walking through Rodeo Drive now. uh, (laughs) Because it is just, it's not the same place. Uh, and then now I would say that the gay community has pretty much found its home these days in Hell's Kitchen, which is in the night in the 40s. Right. So it's it's everything seems to have moved uptown. Yeah, I've I've noticed that. And um, I actually interviewed somebody about a year and a half ago who was opening a brand new multi-story gay bar uh, in Manhattan and it is located in Hell's Kitchen. It's called Club uh, The Q. Well, the Club Q has been in the news a lot lately. Yeah, I know. Yes, Not for okay. good reasons. Yes. But it, <laughs> but it has. And yeah, I've noticed that there's been some some movement up there. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up across the Arthur Kill in, um, in New Jersey. So it was a 20-minute ride to Manhattan. And... Um, you would not at that time have gone to Hell's Kitchen without an armored truck and two armed guards. <laughs> um, it, it just was not the place to be strolling around uh, looking for entertainment because you would end up being the entertainment for someone else. Um, so that's changed a lot. And- oh, it's changed tremendously. I mean, you did not go past Ninth Avenue. Uh, and I, I mean, 8th Avenue was problematic. Uh, very famous restaurant on 46th Street, which is Restaurant Row, is Joe Allen's. And when Joe Allen first opened this restaurant, everybody said, are you crazy? Nobody will ever go there because of its location. And now the entire street, everything is restaurant after restaurant after restaurant. Uh, but I came to New York in 1979. So uh, what New York was like then compared to what it is now uh, is night and day. But one of my, when I watch movies like Midnight Cowboy or Taxi Driver, I actually get nostalgic for what New York was like when I first came. Yeah, that's about the time I left the New York area. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And... um, I never really partied much at the bars in Manhattan. I, I did most of my partying away from uh, the New York metropolitan area. But I have, you know, had been numerous times to the village. I had a cousin who lived uh, right on Bleecker Street, and uh, I used to go visit her every once in a while. And I did go to visit a few bars around there. Now, one one thing of note that's been in the news lately is that in addition to you know all these bars being there, there are also some iconic bars like uh, Julius is right in that neighborhood too, right? That's right. And they were just recently granted landmark status, which is a big deal for the gay community um, in New York and around the, and around the world. Absolutely. Well, I, a lot of it has to do with the cause of the close proximity to Stonewall, right? And the history that's on that street and around that area. Now, when you moved to New York, Stonewall was not Stonewall, was it? The the Stonewall Inn uh, was, it's in the same location uh, where, of course, the Stonewall riots took place. Right. But I don't really remember that being called the Stonewall Inn. I think the, uh, the name of the Stonewall came back years later. Yeah. It would be wrong on that information. No, at one time it was... Um... It was a bagel place. At one time, it was a Chinese restaurant after Stone after the Stonewall riots, and um, it was also called New Jimmy's for a while um, as a bar. And then somebody decided to go back and call it Stonewall um, after you know years later. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so another bar that you've mentioned that, again, is a uh, bar known for its um, piano and is also located in Greenwich Village is the Duplex. Now, the original Duplex uh, was right with two, uh, two doors over from uh, Marie's Crisis. Uh, the, P uh, the cabaret room was upstairs. Uh, Joan Rivers got her start there in that area. Uh, Woody Allen uh, doing stand-up. Uh, Barbara Streisand, uh, uh, they were all in that area. Uh, downstairs, uh, Karen Miller was the most well-known uh, piano player, I guess, that I knew there. Um, and people would be spilling off onto the streets. Now, because of fire zoning laws, you can't do that anymore. But it was literally so packed. It was like sardines in this place. And everything would be spilling out onto the street. And again, as I said earlier, it was like this party atmosphere. And the interesting thing about Karen, you could almost tell the time by the songs that she was playing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would work next door. And I almost knew when she was going to play certain songs that I like to play. And I say that with all due respect to her. I loved her so much. And I miss those days. Um, and again, you know, the bartenders, the wait staff, uh, performing there, that whole general feeling of openness was something that I hope is still out there. You know, now that I'm settled down and married, I don't really go to the bars like I used to. I was never a drinker. So let's start there. Um, and because I was not a drinker, a lot of the traditional gay bars, I mean, I did go to like Uncle Charlie's if I was with friends uh, or uh, boots and saddles, if I was with friends, uh, but I never frequented those places. Yeah, I can understand that. And um, I know when I was when I was going out in those years in the late seventies through the eighties and nineties, <laughs> that time it was not uncommon to go out five or six nights a week, not for the purpose of getting drunk but for the purpose of having somewhere to socialize with other people like yourself. You know, it, in those days, people, a lot of people don't realize that in the seventies and eighties, you didn't just go to the local shopping mall and hang out with five other gay men because that wasn't, you know, everybody was pretty much in the closet or at least not publicly expressing their gayness uh, the way, you know, maybe it's, it's grown today. And so those were the only places really where you had to mm -hmm. make friends and meet husbands, boyfriends, lovers, tricks, whatever you wanted to call them. Um, all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. But, you know, no. there's another aspect of this, uh, Art, if you don't mind my jumping in here. The other aspect was we didn't have social media at that time either. So people were not spending their time on Facebook and Twitter and these other apps if you wanted to meet somebody and you didn't have the dating apps like you did, I remember uh, in the mid eighties, early nineties, when the phone chat lines started proliferating. And so some people would meet people that way, but there, I mean, meeting everyone, if you didn't get out of the house, you didn't meet anyone. Right. That's just the way it was. It was definitely much different. Now, the duplex. So we already have a picture of, you know, what the monster was like. It was this, you know, as you described it, Mercedes Benz. And we have the rundown pickup truck of Marie's Crisis. Where does duplex fit into that mix? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I would probably say that the duplex. I mean, the duplex also was a step above Marie's crisis in terms of who hung out there. Uh, it was mostly a Broadway uh, singing crowd. So everybody was a singer. Uh, Karen knew who the singers were. So she would bring people up on the stage. So I would say that if you were, um, I would probably say that it was um, a slightly beat up Corvette. <laughs> 
How's that for an analogy? Now, one thing that uh, that came to mind as you were describing this is that back in this time frame, um, there was not the overwhelming overexposure of karaoke everywhere. So oh. this was kind of okay. a live music format similar to you know, what we do now with karaoke, except the people who are participating were largely trained vocalists or, or at least talented vocalists for the most part. Absolutely. But you found the other side as well. But again, Karen or whomever was playing there, uh, they were always very generous in giving these people a chance to get up and perform. Even the ones who, it was a hobby, people who never sang outside the shower this was a chance for them to have their moment to feel that they were in the spotlight, living a quote-unquote dream. Uh, so it gave them that opportunity to be able to uh, just go out and everybody felt like a star in these places. I don't remember, and I can't speak for anyone else other than myself, but I never felt or I never saw someone feel ostracized. Um, again, it was always a sense of you're welcome here. You know, today I was listening to the theme of Cheers and the lyric of to go to some place where everybody knows your name. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing for meeting with you today, that it almost brought a tear to my eye as to the when you walk in the door at any of these places, everybody knew who you were and they welcomed you with open arms. And if you were not a part of that world, uh, it became very easy to become part of the world. Uh, I felt that it was all about inclusion and not exclusion. That's a a very important observation because one of the things that comes up repeatedly when I'm speaking with people about bars from the 70s and 80s and thereabouts is that there was more of a feeling of exclusion, that there were a lot of bars that were designed for a specific audience. So it was a white male leather crowd. It was, you know, a very specific subset of the gay community. But I get the impression from what you said that um, at least the bars that we've talked about so far, that there was more of a mix that, you know, there were probably likely to be, especially when you're dealing with Broadway people, uh, people of color, you know, Hispanics, Blacks, some whites, Italians, Irish, uh, male, some female. It was a more of a melting pot of people who appreciated the music and the environment. Well, I always feel that music is uh, a universal art form that brings people together. There are certain things that you're going to like. Obviously, if you're not a fan of piano bar of uh, Broadway show tunes and the Great American Songbook, I don't find think that you would find yourself in one of these bars. But like going to see a, a, a show, going to see someone like Eliza Minnelli or a Bette Midler or a Michael Bublé, uh, the people that are there are there because they all have that gravitational pull to that type of music. And going to these bars at that time, and I was in my 20s, uh, I wasn't going to look for a hookup, although it happened from time to time. Uh, but that wasn't really my goal. My goal was just to get out and have a great time. Um, I, I grew up in a very uh, unusual environment. To go back for a moment in my own childhood, um, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up outside of school. Uh, I didn't socialize. I didn't do any of these things. So when I discovered this world and it felt welcoming and open to me, I felt like I finally had a place to just allow myself to be who I am. And that was a very freeing, gratifying place to be for someone in my 20s starting to come out. And you also have to realize that by the time that I came to the realization that uh, I was gay, and I joke about this because everyone else knew but me, <laughs> uh, but by the time that I came to be living my authentic self, uh, the AIDS crisis was very much front page news every day. So when you are coming out in that kind of environment, and for those viewers who are too young to know about that, uh, it was a whole different feel. 
uh, you were incredibly cautious, at least I was, uh, in terms of who I was with, you know, how I uh, expressed myself, uh, not to get too uh, graphic with you, uh, but uh, just uh, it was a whole different world. Absolutely, especially in New York, because you were the epicenter of the AIDS crisis back then. It was, you know, in more rural and distant areas. It wasn't quite the same, but you were right there in the heart of it all. The first time that I heard of Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, uh, it was originally uh, Equity Fights AIDS. Uh, I was at the Monster. And what started happening was that the Broadway community uh, really got together and said we, because uh, so many Broadway performers were dying off. Michael Bennett, you know, uh, many of the cast members from the Kajra Fall, uh, a lot of people were dying in the theater community. So they formed Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, and they would show up at the piano bars. They would get up, they would sing a couple of songs from whatever hit show they were in at the time. And then they would talk about safety measures and what we needed to do to protect ourselves. And they would throw condoms out to everybody. Um, again, it was a very different world uh, that we were living in at the time. And it was scary because we were not getting the help that we needed as a community. And all of that was coming out as, as well at the same time. Yeah, it was definitely a different time. And the bars were much more community centers than they are today. They weren't just a place you dropped in, had a drink and left. They were a place where you connected with people for all kinds of reasons. And they were really kind of the core of our community. Now, Absolutely. another bar that you mentioned in that area that I had a great deal of difficulty finding much information about, um, out of the five bars that we're discussing today, this one seemed to be the most elusive and uh, seemed to have the least amount of information out there. Although I did find a copy of their menu and their logo and a few other things, which- uh, <laughs> Good for you. I wanted to pat myself on the back, but it the was- pork chops were the best thing they, on their menu. Five Oaks. Well, the Five Oaks was all the way at the very end of, uh, it was at the corner of uh, Bleecker and Grove Street, which was at the end of the block where both Maurice Crisis and the Duplex were. Um, it was an old speakeasy uh, that everyone, uh, again, I mean, you asked earlier a question about the most famous person that I ever saw at the Monster. I saw Liza Minnelli uh, at the Five Oaks. Uh, I saw Rosemary Clooney at the Five Oaks. Uh, I saw Margaret Whiting at the Five Oaks. Um, the Five Oaks was this great place where everyone, and the other interesting thing about the Five Oaks was the Five Oaks stayed open uh, longer later than the other clubs. So those of us who were working at Marie's Crisis and the Monster and these other bars, just to unwind after you've been working all night, you want to unwind, everybody would end up at the Five Oaks. And my favorite memories of the Five Oaks uh, were Marie Blake, uh, who played the piano there. Uh, she, again, knew everybody by name. You'd walk in. I'd walk down the stairs. You came down the stairs again, walked into this room. And if she saw me, she would go, I give you Richard Skipper. She had this gravelly voice. And then she would bring me up to sing. She, she would always play the same song. Uh, and, uh, but... Everybody was there in a very festive party atmosphere. Uh, again, saw the place uh, completely packed. And do you want to go into the negative aspect of what happened there? Go for it. Well, uh, the last call killer uh, actually uh, killed a friend of mine uh, that he met at the Five Oaks. And by that point, this was in the early 90s. I was already with my husband, Dan. Uh, I hear about it on the news. Uh, but after that murder took place, and it basically put a face on the serial killer, uh, the whole vibe of that place completely changed. Business dropped off. Uh, the people that were there did not know if it was a, a waiter that worked there 
or someone connected with the place or just someone who came in and randomly picked somebody up. Once that happened, everything completely changed, not only there, but also in the vibe of the uh, of that street in the community. I did an A&E special on City Confidential. And one of the things that uh, we mentioned on the show was, again, these places were very welcoming. And all of a sudden, some monster comes in and throws a monkey wrench into everything and changes everything for then and for forevermore. Uh, and it was not long after that that the Five Oaks closed. It was never the same on that street again. Now, since you opened that door slightly, um, the last call killer, who is obviously a serial killer known for preying on gay men in New York City mostly, mm-hmm. um, he seemed to have an affinity, from what I recall, of uh, piano bars. Because wasn't his one of his other stomping grounds the townhouse, which is the townhouse, and also the uh, I I, I want to say uh, it, the parrot or the paradise club. It begins with a P um, in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, he also picked up someone there. Now, was your friend uh, who was killed by the last call killer? Was he? From what I understand, the last call killer's victims were typically the older men who picked up the younger guys that were there was your friend and somewhat older. He was older. Okay. I mean, and he, he was someone uh, And actually there's an incredible book um, about the last call killer. Right. And the chapter on Michael, uh, my friend that was killed uh, is called I'll be seeing you because Michael always ended the evening. That was the very last song. He was a typesetter. And he would come to the Five Oaks after he got off work to unwind, have a cocktail or two. And we got to know each other because we both lived on the Upper West Side and we would take the subway together. And that's, I knew him, of course, from the Five Oaks, but writing, you know, almost we would go, it was also a place that we're not talking about called the Tiffany Diner. And the Tiffany Diner was also in Sheridan Square. And after everything closed, everybody ended up at Tiffany's for breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> um, everybody would end up there. And it was like, the again, this whole area was like this community that everybody knew each other. And I saw some of the wildest, craziest things you could possibly imagine at the Tiffany Diner at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. I would be there. Well... Um, I will definitely put something up at the end here in the credits that also includes um, a little bit of information about The Last Call Killer, which, as I recall, it was written by someone named Elon Green, I think. That's right. Elon Green. And, and it I was one of the him as well. It was one of the first books that I um, collected in the sort um, in the stage of doing this research, not for your interview, but just in general, mm-hmm. uh, I started looking for books about you know, gay bar stories. And unfortunately, um, Last Call Killer was one of the ones that came up, um, I guess, because of, you know, murder and mayhem get more publicity than the, than the positive side of things. But um, an American Horror Story, I don't know if you saw it, but they recently yeah. did a story on the Mai Tai Killer, and that's based on the Last Call Killer. Yeah. But um, so Five Oaks basically did not survive all the the bad press and the and the community sentiments after the um the onset of the last call killings but the building i assume is still there the building is still there uh the last time that i was in that area uh, i live in rockland county i'm about 25 minutes north of manhattan but when i lived in manhattan that was my neighborhood i hung out there i didn't live there i lived on the upper west side but I was very much a part of that entire area. And the last that I knew, the the building itself, it became another restaurant. And I've never been into the restaurant uh, since it changed hands. So I don't even know what it is now. Now, the, the final bar, the final piano bar that we're going to talk about today is the first piano bar in New York City that I uncovered information about when I started 
on the Gabe Archives project. And I thought when I saw the first little scrap of an ad from this bar, I said, that is the coolest logo yes. for a piano bar and the name as well. Um, it's called 88s, which obviously is a reference to the street address. No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> <laughs> the number of keys on the piano. That's right. Right. Um, and their logo reflects that very well. So it looks to me from what I've seen, the information of the different bars and pictures I've, I've discovered online, 88 looks to me like it was more polished and proper than the other bars, but that's not necessarily the case. That could be a trick of no, technology. You're, you're absolutely right. It was a jewel box. It was gorgeous. Um, the entire, the decor, the entire feeling, uh, the piano bar, uh, the uh, cabaret room that was uh, upstairs uh, was absolutely gorgeous. To get there, the, the walls were mirrored going up uh, uh, to the piano bar, uh, the um, cabaret room. Uh, Irv Rabel, uh, who had worked at Don't Tell Mama, uh, Karen Miller, who I mentioned earlier, and her then partner, Rochelle Selden, the three of them got together, they they went into business together and they opened 88s. 88s was the ultimate goal for any cabaret performer that was performing at that time. Upstairs uh, was the cabaret room. And then downstairs, again, a, a bar when you first walked in and then the piano. And uh, it was very plush in terms of its look, its feel, and again, what I love so much about these places were the crowds of people that were always standing around the piano singing. You can't have that anymore. It doesn't exist. Uh, years ago, a friend of mine came to New York and she wanted to go back to Don't Tell Mama. And she was a waitress there a hundred years ago. Uh, but I said, it's not the same. It's It's just not the same because after the... If you recall, the there was a famous fire in Rhode Island where a lot of people perished. And after that fire, all the zoning uh, ordinances in New York changed completely. So you cannot have crowds of people just standing around in a bar anymore. It's not like a dance club. Right. These were specific places where people would go. You didn't need a seat. If you got a seat, you were lucky because it was just so packed. It was like sardines. Now, you mentioned that um, 88 was like a jewel box and it was, you know, it was pretty and it was, you know, it, it was welcoming and it was the kind of place that you wanted as a performer to be, um, to be seen and to be able to sing and participate and hang out with your, with your friends. But in general, my, re my memory of going out to bars like that, to going out to piano bars and uh, cocktail lounges and things, is that in general, those kind of bars would almost mandate, or at least in my head, they would mandate that I dress up a little bit. Like if you were going to, I don't know, Uncle Charlie's or some other run-of-the-mill bar, um, I was in Atlanta at the time. I would go out with torn jeans and a t-shirt, a tank top. I didn't care. But if you were going to a bar like Marie's Crisis or Duplex or 88s, I kind of feel like I would have been more dressed up. Was that typically the case? Did people tend to dress up a little bit and be a little bit more proper in those if bars? If you were going to go see a show at 88s, I think you would dress up for the occasion. But other than that, I I would respectfully disagree with that statement, especially uh, from the piano bars that I knew. Um, a lot of guys uh, dressed, uh, if they were on the prowl, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> yes, they would dress for that occasion. Um, some people did, you know, I, I don't recall, uh, especially, you know, at 88's, the monster interview, of people being, you know, incredibly dressed up. Yeah, to go to these clubs and these bars. Now, you mentioned that a couple of the bars attracted 
um, somewhat of a celebrity or at least a Broadway celebrity crowd. Was that the case with 88 or was it a little bit too fancy for that? Because I mean, no, obviously, no, 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 it did attract those. Liza Minnelli would go there. Uh, Billy Stritch, who played for Liza for a long, long time. Uh, he played there from time to time. Uh, because of the uh, Irv Rabel who booked the cabaret room uh, was incredibly selective uh, in terms of who he would book there. Uh, to be honest with you, um, with all due respect to any of my cabaret friends who will see this show, um, the bar has lowered a lot in terms of if you can pay the room charge and you've got an, uh, a show that you can put in, you get booked in a lot of these rooms because it's economics. But at that time, Irv Rabel was incredibly selective with who he would book in the room. So you got the best of the best of the best performing there. And as a result, um, people would go to 88s on a Friday or Saturday night, not knowing who was performing there. Um, because you knew that if you went in, you were going to get a class act show, an A1 show. Uh, it was very rare that you would go there and see a dud. Uh, that and that I owe to Irv Rabel. Uh, but um, nowadays, um, it's a crapshoot uh, in some of these rooms. I mean, they're the, the high-end cabaret rooms uh, are very different. But a lot of the other rooms... Uh, again, like I said, if you can pay the room charge, they'll book you. So if you were going to make a trip back into the city with your husband and go to a bar, wanting to get back as close as you could to that kind of piano bar vibe that we've talked about here with these bars, where would you go today? I don't think that it exists. I have to be honest with you. There's not a, a, the... It used to be, as I used to, as I said earlier, this open, welcoming vibe. Unfortunately, what has happened in the few piano bars that are still around is that the wait staff um, are very much about their performing there. They're doing their jobs, obviously, but it's all about their moment in the spotlight. They're not as welcoming as they used to be. I felt that shift began to happen uh, in the mid nineties. Uh, it, it's just a whole different vibe. Well, that's somewhat unfortunate and maybe who knows in a few years, somebody will open up another piano bar and actually do it the old school way. And we'll see some sort of resurgence. Um, I really appreciate Let's talk. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk us down memory lane with these uh, with these bars. And hopefully a lot of people will respond and interact and have, you know, a little smile on their face, knowing that somebody still remembers the bars that they used to go to and and listen to the piano music and live singing and, you know, hang out with their friends. But let's talk a little bit about you. So okay. you moved to New York City in the late 70s. That's what, Where were you from before then? Where did you live before then? I grew up on a tobacco farm in South Carolina. I grew up as far from this world as anyone could possibly find themselves. And what brought you to New York? Uh, entertainment. Uh, I grew, I'm a product of 1960s and 70s television. I grew up in the world of the variety show uh, that was the show business that I wanted to be a part of. So I made up my mind when I was 13 years old that in five years after I graduated from high school, I was going to go to New York. I picked the date and I stuck to it. Uh, August 5th, 1979. I got on a plane. I had never flown before. I had never been outside of my hometown uh, without my family. I had never slept in another bed except when I stayed at my grandparents. Uh, I didn't know anything but with $500 in my pocket and a big dream, I got on an airplane and I came to New York. I was 18. And what was that like stepping into the big city? Because obviously you'd never been there before. I'd never been here before. Um, I had a vision of what New York was like based on uh, 
you know, in my own, I have a show called The Magic of Believing. And I say that I imagined a New York of New York on Sunday, uh, breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, all of these uh, gorgeous movies that showed the beauty of New York. And when I arrived in New York, I ended up in the middle of Taxi Driver and Midnight Cowboy. It was a completely different world. And it was a few years before I started venturing out on my own to these piano bars uh, because the vibe in New York City at night, and it's gone back to that, unfortunately, but it was a very, um, you were taking your life in your hands, you know, by going out at night on your own. So obviously you got settled in somewhere, you found a place to live and you found a place to work so you could afford to stay there. Mm -hmm. But you had these dreams about being a performer. Um, what were you looking for? What? How did you want to perform? Well, like I said, the world that I imagined no longer existed either. It was this variety uh, show type of world. Um, I started, uh, I got my first acting job uh, three weeks after getting to New York. Um, and I auditioned for everything. Uh, if it didn't exclude me by race or gender, I was there auditioning for it because I went to every audition and I pretty much worked nonstop. I did a lot of showcases. I went from show to show to show. Uh, and then something came along called Reaganomics. Remember that? I do. Uh, and uh, when uh, the arts funding was cut, the opportunities were also cut. Uh, a lot of theaters uh, would perform in storefront windows. Um, I performed in very intimate spaces. Uh, again, I went from uh, show to show to show, but the economics of what that world was like began to change. And it was because of those changes that I began to do my own act, put my own show together. And I had a very, I'm knocking a word when I say this, I had a lucrative career in cabaret. Now, more recently, um, and I know part of this has really blown up because of the pandemic limitations in New York, but even before that, as we kind of alluded to at the beginning of the interview, you have made it a mission to interview and, in your own uh, words, celebrate the lives of a lot of people who have been involved in the entertainment industry in New York and around the world. Um, my understanding is... You, from what you said earlier, you've done over a thousand interviews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of them are available through your YouTube channel and other online sources. But um, what inspired though? How did you decide that you wanted to be, you know, out there celebrating all these people who were performing alongside of you or across the street from you? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I love to hear my answer. No, that's a, that's an old Carol Channing line. <laughs> no, <laughs> no um, actually, I started out, um, I performed, uh, also to put it out there, uh, for 20 years, I performed all over the world, essentially, as Carol Channing. I was considered the premier Carol Channing impersonator. Um, and uh, out of that, Carol and I became very good friends. At the very end of that run, um, I can't really go into details, but I signed a bad contract. And I spent seven years in litigation fighting for the rights to my show. That changed everything for me, obviously. Uh, so Carol suggested that I write a book celebrating the women who have played Dolly. Um, and I've done, uh, that, th there alone, I've done hundreds of interviews uh, from actors, people behind the scenes, uh, from all aspects of the world of Dolly Levi. Hello, Dolly. So I started writing a blog and doing those interviews. And then that basically led to me doing other interviews. And when I first started doing my interviews, my blog was called Richard's Rants and Raves. And someone pointed out, they said, you're always raving about these artists, but you're never really ranting about them. And uh, 
I decided to call it Richard Skipper Celebrates because I feel that in today's world, in today's culture, too much emphasis is spent on the negativity. Uh, when you look at, I believe that the bullying culture has infiltrated itself into every aspect of our lives. Every reality-based television show is based on someone getting kicked off the island or someone's dress design being worse than someone else's. Or there are a lot of quote-unquote losers and one winner. And I believe that everybody deserves to be celebrated. I don't care who you are, where you've come from. Um, well, there are a few exceptions. You and I both know who they are. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, most people deserve to be celebrated. And I'm very interested in what makes a person tick. I'm interested in how they got from point A to point B and beyond. How do they approach the work that they do? What is it that inspires them? All of those aspects are what I'm interested in as an interviewer. I'm not interested in the gossip. I'm not interested in who they slept with or who hurt them or who they've hurt. Um, I'm interested in celebrating the positive aspects of what makes an artist an artist. And I believe, you know, some people, Bette Midler, for example, she doesn't believe that an artist should call themselves an artist, that that's for others to decide. But I disagree with that. I believe that if you throw yourself, you're an artist at what you do. Look at this platform that you've created and look at the great that you're creating out of this. You deserve to be celebrated for that. And I have had the pleasure of being on one segment of your show. So I feel like I have been celebrated. And you'll be on it again, I hope. I hope so. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned Carol Channing and, and unfortunately, uh, among the younger crowd, there's probably a lot of people who don't know much about who Carol Channing was. But I must say that um, out of all of the, the female leads uh, in movies and Broadway, she was definitely one of the ones that made a huge impact on me. I will never forget. Uh, and I love, by the way, um, Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly is like on the top 10 of my um, my favorite musicals slash movies. Um, great story. Just really enjoyed it. And I had the pleasure of seeing her perform the role of Dolly. She must have been 75 years old. Uh, when, she was. When she was. she was 74. May I bring up a photograph? I'll bring Absolutely. up uh, two photographs here, if I may. Um, they're here. They ha they're handy. Uh, this is Carol and me together. You can see this. Aww. And there we are. And th this is the first time that Carol saw me perform as Carol. Oh, very cool. <laughs> I love that. And that was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. And uh, uh, Carol, she comes from that school of the show must always go on. Uh, she always felt that if people were coming to the theater to see a show that had her name on it, that it was her duty to go on and perform for them and to give 150%, if not more. And she did. Uh, she would feel that if people bought a baby, uh, hired, hired a babysitter, or they've gone uh, and going to the theater, let's face it, especially now, is a very expensive night out. And there are, uh, and you go to see a show now and it's especially difficult in today's world where COVID, uh, I got my booster yesterday, by the way, um, very important to do that. Uh, it's very, um, you go to a, a show now and all these pieces of paper fall out of the playbill of all the standbys and the understudies. They work hard to keep these shows afloat. So they need to be celebrated. Uh, if you go to see a show and you're going to see a Carol Channing um, or a Patty Depone or a Bernadette Peters, and you find out that they're not able to go on that night for whatever reason, because they come from that school where they are there to entertain you, 
Please understand that if they could be there, they would be there. But celebrate those artists that are stepping into their shoes so that the show does go on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, and you probably know the answer to this. My mind works in very strange ways. And sometimes... (laughs) Welcome to my world. It associates, like, bizarre words or images with a person. And for some reason, the one word that is etched in my brain that is associated with Carol Channing, and you may be able to tell me if there's a legitimate reason for this or if I just made it up, the word vicissitudes. Did she use that in some kind of a comic line or something that she was probably did? Uh, you know, it it's sounds just like etched in my was... head that of her <laughs> saying vicissitudes. Yeah, but um, in any event, we appreciate the fact that you were doing all this to commemorate all these people in show business and all the things they've done. And we especially appreciate the fact that you've taken an hour out of your time to talk to us about your bar memories from these fabulous piano bars in Greenwich Village. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I've had a wonderful time. And uh, again, I can't wait to celebrate you again. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show. For more information about this episode, or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.